Hello, you're listening to the podcast version of ACFM on Navarra Media. And on the podcast version of this show, you'll get the stimulating and mind-expanding discussion from our hosts, but you won't get the music. That's because of the way rights and licenses work in the digital age. So you're really only getting half the picture, but there is an easy way to fix that. If you head over to the navaramedia.com website, you can stream the full show. It's easy enough. Just follow the link in the description of this podcast. Otherwise, enjoy the standalone discussion in this episode of ACFM. Politics is actually about everyday life. It's about all of us, what we dream, what we want, what we achieve, and what we want for everybody else. your whole context and it happened in a, in a uh, group with other people who were experiencing the same thing so you felt validated you didn't feel crazy anymore and you knew that uh, really what you were saying and feeling was the truth and you know what that politics that got out of the box is not going back in any box because we're there demanding and achieving something very different in our society and in our lives. Welcome to ACFM, the home of the weird left. The last few years have seen an unexpected opening of political possibility within British politics. This radio show will explore the history of the relationship between theory, culture and politics to offer some ideas on how the left can make the moment count. For us, that will involve the left staking a claim on ideas it is not traditionally associated with, such as collective joy, creativity and freedom. In order to reflect this idea, this show is not intended to be a traditional podcast, but more of a radio show. We are going to mix up our chats with some tracks that loosely relate to the themes. Well, what's free to you? What's what free I, to me? Yeah. Same thing it is to you. You tell me. No, no, you tell me. <laughs> no, no. Because <laughs> I have to talk to you for it's such a long time. It's just a feeling. It's just a feeling. So I'm Nadia Idol. Uh, I'm Jeremy Gilbert. I'm uh, Kay Milburn. So the first thing we want to talk about is our hopes for this radio show and why we got involved in this project in the first place. So I think for me, I haven't seen that much media out there which connects sort of the amazing conversations that I've been having with people, which are quite euphoric uh, in a sense, with the political reality that exists today. So I'm really interested in the politics of everyday life, but also how politics can be transformative. Um, and I think I've had conversations with people here and others that I found really exciting. And I thought, well, these, if this is, every time we talk to other people about this stuff, they think, yes, this is the sort of stuff we want to be doing. So we thought, well, since our chats are so good then, and other people seem to enjoy them, then maybe let's try doing this radio show and also talk about the involvement of music um, in politics and like where culture is at, because that seems to be something that, see, that doesn't really, has not really talked about that much on the left. So yeah, that's why I'm excited about this project. 
Okay, well, broadly, I, I hope that the show is going to open up a space, a bigger space than we seem to have at the moment for talking about cultural politics, broadly conceived, for talking about culture in the sense both of you know, music and other expressive arts, but talking about the way we live, the way we use our time, the way we relate to each other on an everyday level in a, in a broad political frame, in a sort of broad political context. And I think thinking about well, what it means to have a broad broadly conceived radical politics which is utopian in its aspirations which really does want to make a better world and it doesn't but doesn't confine itself solely to industrial strategy and you know, economic policy which i think is a real problem with current left discourse that you know the, the political discourse of the political the radical movement which are all to some extent attached is almost exclusively focused actually on just com- reversing austerity and building an industrial strategy which is fine and we all support that but we want to know what else what else is radical politics going to look like in the 21st century? And I think that's, broadly speaking, the, the question that we want to try to answer. No, I totally agree with that, yeah. And in fact, I'd go further. <laughs> At the risk of hyperbole, the future of the world depends on this podcast. Uh, I'd go with that. I'd go with that. <laughs> well, no, but I'm, I mean... I'm not really committing myself to it. <laughs> well, we'll see how it turns out. Uh, but we should set out the political situation a little bit more of, you know, the... Um, so we've got the, we're in a sort of phony war period at the moment in the UK, right? Where it's I think it's fairly likely we're going to have a Corbyn-led Labour government, and I think within five years that probably means we're going to have a fairly serious political confrontation in this country, and it won't be just be limited to this country. It's a confrontation with international capital and the forces lined up behind it, and that will have a big impact. It will decide the the <laughs> the future for our, for the left in this country no matter whether you're in the Labour Party or not, we're all tied together in at this period around this looming confrontation. And you can sort of see, you can sort of see people trying to prepare for this, in the phony war period, prepare for what's coming, for the battle to come. You know, positions are being, being, being things are being put into place. Uh, you know, um, people are trying to build up the sort of forces that they need, trying to c- c- construct the narratives that they, that they want. Uh, you know, so on the left, I think you can say, you know, people are sort of trying to trying to get trying to build up or trying to build up the forces, the extra parliamentary forces of the left. You know, people are struggling to get some union movement up so that it can resist the sorts of attacks we're going to face. Um, people are trying to set up renters, unions, ACON, etc. All of these things, you know, they're, they're good things to do. But I think that they're also a lot of people are seeing them as we must prepare our forces. And on the right, you can see how. You know, Brexit is being articulated in order to try to weaken the left, the left of Labour Party and the left further afield. I think we do fit into that. And I think we fit into it for the reasons that Jen was just talking about, which is, which is there's a weakness on the left. In the, and there's a weakness to do tied up with Jeremy Corbyn, right? So Corbyn is, Corbyn's shtick is he's a very moral person. And that is part of his attraction. That's what's, he's not changed his mind through all of the, the years of, corruption and compromise in the new new labor years he's a man who does what needs to be done which is great but it's not enough we also need the left to be built around the project of freedom and so i sort of see this show as like we're going to sort of explore what freedom means what what this what the concept of freedom that mobilizing that's mobilizing the left but also the concept of freedom which is mobilizing the young because age is a big divider in this 
I'm interested in the fact, and this is a decision that I think we made about five minutes ago, is to put the term weird left in the beginning of our introduction. Now, I don't know the history of the weird left as a category at all, but it... Uh, it but was it, invented five minutes ago. Right, okay, fine, there we go. Um, <laughs> I thought this might be... it can be traced back to the Dadaists right. long before. <laughs> but, it, but it appeals to me because, A, of the juxtaposition, which is something we're going to talk about, about what the left is and what weird is, being too... Which, things which people imagine is very different. But also there's something about talking about, you know, weird and acid and these terms, which actually speak to human beings' experienced reality in a way that a lot of left politics doesn't. And the reason why that's important is it seems to be that we're talking on two different levels. On one level, there's the what's going to happen to capital, what's happening in elections, etc. But we know that people in the West, in Britain especially, are very anxious mental health, all of that, are really serious things which are affecting people in a day-to-day life, and they're talking about them, but we're not talking about them on the level of how can culture alleviate and transform on that level. And I think, for me, that's why this is really important. Well, yeah, I agree. I think, I think in terms of the mapping of where we are politically, I think it's worth observing. I mean, you can say pretty clearly that there's an emergent cultural politics on the right, which is the culture of the, the alt-right, the kind of new racism, and it's kind of weird syntheses with various kinds of authoritarianism and kind of libertarian anti-statism. There's clearly a well-established culture in the centre, which is the, the culture of cosmopolitan neoliberalism. And we all know what that is. You know, It's the culture of meritocracy, you know, radical individualism, um, a certain kind of multiculturalism, but one that's based very much on seeing people just as individuals who are to be allowed to compete with each other on an equal footing irrespective of background or culture and it's not really but I mean it's much harder to say what the culture of the left is you know to discern the culture of the left and I think there's quite a lot of work to be done in kind of both on drawing on our own history and in seeing what the kind of imminent possibilities are in the the present moment to construct like a distinctive culture for the left and also and to not be apologetic about it I think one of the features of the situation we're in today is that after the terrible political defeats of the 80s, the left became completely apologetic about its own cultural history and yeah, its I own would agree culture. With that. And, um, and it still doesn't really know, it still doesn't really know how to articulate a kind of confident vision of our own version, our own version of anti-racism, our own version of feminism in ways which are not just very authoritarian. And, I mean, with reference to the, the notion of freedom, I mean, one of the dangers, I think, is actually what is emerging as the distinctive culture of the left is a very authoritarian, actually just a very authoritarian kind of identity politics and very kind of moralising kind of politics that are not going to be fun, are not fun for anybody and are not going to win, win us any friends. So I think that, and that's partly why the question of, you know, what does it mean, what does it mean to have a fun left, actually, as well as a weird left? Like, what would yeah. it mean to have a fun left is, 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 a, is a major question for us, I think, and that's one of the things I want us to explore. Because people want to have fun. Like, that's important. We have to be saying, yes, it's important. You do want to have fun, as opposed to stop having fun because there's more work to be done. Yeah, more Which fun. is really problematic. We, wanna, we, we were against capitalism because it's not fun enough. Exactly. Like, <laughs> capitalism has shit parties. Our parties are much better. But, but, the, but the left also has shit parties, as in... That's true. There that is, is true. a culture on the left, and it is a miserable culture formed of, of years and years of defeats, basically, of sectarianism and, and, and very, very low expectations. So the other thing we could say is that the other thing about the conjuncture at the moment is uh, there wasn't space for a, for, a, for a conception of freedom on the left because it was occupied by a sort of centrist or neoliberal idea of freedom which would be entrepreneurialism or some sort of weird sense of entrepreneurialism 
tied up to individualism. Uh, so now I think there is room for a, for a culture of freedom on the left. And I think the culture on the right, the right are trying to, trying to adopt or, or occupy the space of freedom reducing it to the idea of free speech which is then reduced to the uh, to the idea that nazis should be allowed or racists should be allowed to say things without consequence i think that's a weak that's uh, at the minute that's disorientated the left this this shift by the alt-right towards occupying a, a, this discourse of freedom but i think it could turn out to be a really big historic strategic mistake for the right because it's not a natural it, it's not we could come up with a much stronger, more attractive version of freedom, you know, a, a democratic version of freedom about freedom as capacity that you can only exercise with other people. But the, the other motivation, I think, is uh, we don't just want to talk about this. We don't just want to sort of excavate this idea of freedom. We also want to work out um, how, how you create the technologies and tools to turn that version of freedom into something which is livable. Um, the word psychedelic, I'm not quite sure in my own mind precisely what it means. I mean, does it literally mean mind-revealing? Does it mean a substitute for LSD? Does it mean LSD itself? Does it mean art forms like underground movies? I mean, is it any of these things, all of these things, or none of these things? Psychedelic music is music that expands your awareness, your consciousness. So I feel like we do need to talk about this term acid, because this is the where the AC radio as in acid corbinism or communism or acid something came in um and that attracts me um because i love the juxtaposition of acid with communism because it totally screws up your Im the images in your head and it makes i just like things that provoke people to think differently about something um but maybe one of you guys can talk a little bit more about that and obviously the origins and mark fisher and his influence on our ideas and stuff well, okay, so Mark um, was working on a book that eventually he, he was going to call Acid Communism, and he actually he got the phrase uh, from a book about the life of the radical um, psychotherapist R.D. Lang, uh, which referred to Lang as an acid Marxist. Actually, he, got it, he, he actually got the phrase from an interview with David Tennant in which he talked about the book. So I remember when he told me, he was very excited because about this, this great phrase. And... But what the book, but what Mark was using the term acid communism to designate was a general sort of set of ideas, moods, political projects, attitudes, which very broadly speaking, we could say, was the kind of the politics and the culture of the counterculture of the the psychedelic movements and the new left, etc. In the kind of late sixties and early seventies. I mean, for me personally, it's it's very difficult to disentangle like Mark's account as we have it in the one you know, the couple of the one text and one talk really he actually wrote on the theme from from my own kind of, of approach to it, because Mark and I were always kind of talking about those ideas together and always in kind of dialogue and always like pinging back and forth. But broadly speaking, acid communism designates the idea that there was this set of radical political and cultural demands, this set of radical cultural and social possibilities, which had a real presence, as a real, you know, as you know, really having the potential to create some form of post-capitalist sort of utopian, well, not, not really literally utopian, but much better than we've got now, kind of society, which was present in the kind of global culture and political sphere in the late 60s and into the 70s, which was then ultimately sort of suppressed and defeated by... Uh, the the success of neoliberalism and um 
And then acid Corbynism was a phrase that Matt Full came up with, which was sort of playing on this term, sort of designated, sort of gesturing towards the idea that acid, um, that, you know, we might take some of those ideas informing the idea of acid communism, which, which in Marx's account was still quite, quite general, quite detached from any kind of immediate political possibility, and instead apply them to an approach to... You know, understanding and relating to the actual political moment we're in now, you know, and the possibilities of actually developing kind of mainstream political programs and policies and strategies, which were informed by some of that same democratic, utopian, experimental spirit. And so, one of the things that Mark was really interested in with the idea, I mean, why acid is actually what we're supposed to be talking about. Well, why acid? Partly because it, partly because one of the main components of that whole formation was the psychedelic movement, but partly because. Um, there's a, Mark was identifying a clear affinity between the psychedelic movement proper, which wants to use psychedelic drugs and culture to kind of change people's way of thinking about the world and relating to the world, to expand their consciousness in their terms. Uh, Mark kind of slightly translated that into the idea of people sort of inflating their consciousness. Um, and a broader, you know, set of attempts to change people's consciousness, whether it's the women's movement trying to raise consciousness about, you know, the oppressive effects of patriarchy, whether it's the classical idea of class consciousness being raised. So what Marx saw as being sort of shared between a whole range of different uh, projects, you know, and... Um, you know, from, you know, the sort of uh, musical experimentalism of, you know, of, the, of sort of acid rock and the kind of popular appropriations of it, like in the work of the Beatles, to kind of radical movements like the Black Panthers, etc., was this desire to really push forward, you know, uh, the possibilities people might have for how they could understand themselves and their relationship to the world, etc. So... I mean, in that, in that notion, in that focus on consciousness raising and consciousness as an, as an idea, he was really, you know, he was really influenced by the work that Plan C had been doing, actually, with the Plan C, the kind of uh, sort of libertarian communist group, uh, which both of you guys have been involved with, which was, you know, experimenting, kind of reviving the idea of the consciousness raising group and consciousness raising as a deliberate practice. So I think maybe Akir can add more to that than I can. Yeah, well, let me. I'm going to get to that. I think so. I want to. I, I was thinking. I had a long, lonely, very long, long delayed train journey down from uh, Leeds this morning, and I was trying to think about what is the acid. What does the acid bit do? Um, and, and I was thinking, acid is like a technology of defetishization, basically, right? And I think consciousness raising is also, or could be seen as like another sort of one of those technologies of defetishization. So I should explain what defetishization Although is. Although I also have a theory that Corbyn and acid have the same effect, which I can <laughs> have a whole radio show on, but we'll see what's going to come out well, we of should, your train journey. We should definitely do that. We should definitely have, a, have, a, have, a, have an episode de devoted solely to consciousness raising and exploring all of that. All right, so, but look, what a, a fetish is... Or fetishism as it's used in Marxist terms. So basically, I'm going to try and explain acid in Marxist terms, which is, if, it's, this is, if that's not what this radio shows about, no, right, I don't yeah. know what is. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> so uh, a fetish is something which is a result of social relations or social processes, but then it gets detached from those processes and it seems to be independent of them and then quite often works its way back. So it appears to be the the generator of those social relations themselves or the, or the base upon which those social relations themselves are. so marx uses the term fetish because it's 
the fetish in anthropology and kind of 19th century anthropology is a, is a kind of magical object which people worship which they invent and people think the object itself has some magical power and so yeah. so for marx the commodity or other kinds of social phenomena become fetishized at the moment when people think of them as, as having some kind of autonomous value or power and lose sight of the fact that they're always the product of collective action and social relations yeah uh, and of course, the important thing about that is if they if they don't if they lose their if they appear not to be the result of social processes, then they cannot be changed, right? Exactly. So God is another example of a fetish. If you're not religious, and I'm not religious, uh, you know, basically, so that's a creation of human minds, which basically appears to be independent of humans, and in fact, it's in fact it appears to be the thing that caused humans. And as soon as it gets to that position, it cannot be changed, which is the importance of defetishization in a way. So another way, so so you know, you could. Another way to think about it is, well, um, it's not just money that's a fetish. Um, you know, so perhaps society's a fetish. Perhaps individuals are fetishes. Perhaps race is a fetish. Right, so I've got this, I, I, I like this, this, this term. I like it so much, I can't remember who said it. <laughs> but there's this, this phrase which says that um, race is as real and as made up as Wednesdays. <laughs> right? As in, you know, there's nothing in nature which designates, you know, a period of the Earth's rotation as a Wednesday, right? It is completely made up. But of course, it's concrete, it's real. If you've got a bail hearing set for Wednesday and you decide it's just a, a construct and you turn up on a Monday, then that will be turned into a concrete, well, that'll be turned into a concrete um, room with a bar on a window. Right? It, they, these things are real, right? They have real effects, but they are changeable because they're made up, right? Uh, and so I think acid is one of those technologies. The effects of LSD, you know, LSD, when we talk about acid, one of the effects is that it can, it makes, it sort of can reveal those sorts of things as fetishes, fetishes. Uh, and I think consciousness raising groups are another sort of technology which can sort of do something like that. Do you know what I mean? Uh, but the important thing is, it's that thing of um, they're real and concrete. Right, and that's the difference between, and this is something that came up in the counterculture a lot. That's the difference between like a revolution in your head. Let's just, I, I can just, you know, change my attitude towards Wednesdays. But that's still real unless you change everybody else's attitudes towards Wednesdays. So that's a revolution in your head versus a revolution in the world. And I think that was one of the, the, the relationship between those two things was one of the things that the tensions, probably the productive tension that drove the counterculture in the 1960s and 70s. Probably one of the things that broke it as well, although I think the neoliberal counterattack uh, had more to play on that. But. Yeah, that, I think that's really uh, that's really useful. I think I think that's a really good way of thinking about it because it's also, I mean, Mark was interested in this notion of plasticity, which I don't, I think, I don't think in the text, I don't, does he explicitly refer to Catherine Malibu? It's a kind of, I don't think he does, but it's Catherine Malibu, sort of French philosopher, who's very interested in what's called neuroplasticity, which is basically the recognition that brains are always changing and so there are all kinds of things that go on outside of the brain like you know the exercise you do the food you eat just you know falling in love or not falling in love will will ch actually change your brain chemistry so it's against a kind of way of understanding the brain that sees the brain as just the thing that produces the self and the world and, and recognizes that it's always part of it and so plasticity but for Mark, like psychedelic culture the point about psychedelic culture was that it's a sort of celebration of the plasticity of the world it's, it's just, and of the plasticity of social relations and i think um that's really yeah i think that's a really good way of putting it that 
yeah, the, the LSD. And it is, I mean, it's one of the, it's really consistent. I mean, you can go and look, this isn't just kind of people speculating. You can go and look at the vast reams now of scientific literature studying the kind of predictable effect of psychedelic experience on people. And, you know, one of them is a kind of confrontation with or a recognition of the, the, the contingency of social relations and those kind of social, the kind of socially constructed nature of all kind of various sort of phenomena, even though those phenomena, as you say, are real it's, it's also it's an interesting point of affinity with some of those strands of you know asian contemplative practice that and philosophy they've got that get bound up with psychedelic culture from the 60s because actually in them in in sort of in taoism in, in buddhism etc there's also a tradition you know one of the reasons they prove so appealing to people actually is because is because they also actually have a notion of social construction they have a notion of the arbitrariness the conventionality of things that people take for granted and they're part of that tradition so that is really important and it's a really important point about Mar about understanding marxism that the, the point of recognizing the ways in which things are socially and materially constructed is to is to recognize that they're changeable But isn't there also something about the use of the term asset in terms of saying we want to move outside the frames of reference of which neoliberal ideology has such control over people? And so when we talk about anxiety and atomization and people's re material reality, it, it feels so stuck and it feels so disempowering and so oppressive being in a lot of social realities in Britain today, but you can't quite say it's one thing or another. And I think the usefulness of acid communism, acid Corbynism or whatever is saying, actually we do have to have some kind of consciousness raising project through culture, which actually sidesteps. And it's through the sidestepping of what people see as a perceived reality that things can really be transformative and you don't need to actually take acid for that to happen. Yeah, I think that's... Yeah, we've got, <laughs> that's I think, really important. I think, I think yeah. we, have to make, we have to make that clear. Like we, we're, not, we're, not, you know, we're not telling people to break the law or, you know, use psychedelic drugs. I, mean, just, I, mean, I, I wish you'd really, told me that before I drank that orange juice. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but I, you know, I mean, I was really struck by it. I mean, Kieran and I, sort of, you know, similar generation, similar backgrounds. But that was sort of, you know, when I was a kid on a council estate in the 80s, like before I'd had much exposure to the sort of grand tradition of, psych, of kind of California-centred psychedelic culture, that was, all, that was already part of kind of street law actually, about, about psychedelics, about acid. Like, you take it, and if you take it, it will show you something about social reality that you, you, you wouldn't have seen otherwise. I mean, that's, I, was, I remember being told that when I was 15, but, like, 16-year-old sort of, you know, scallies. And it is, so it is really interesting. That is really strange. But, yeah, you're right, of course... Actually, I mean, with reference to Mark, Mark wasn't really interested in psychedelics as such, as a natural practice, or as, a, as, a, as a technology, you know, and, I th and, you know, and none of us are kind of, you know, current or habitual or sort of committed, you know, users of those things. So, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's about, it's more that, the, I mean, there is, there, there is this kind of interesting way, actually, in which modern cultural history, psychedelics and psychedelic culture stands as this kind of ultimate image of, being willing to experiment with consciousness and experiment with the self and but you're right i mean it, it, yeah you're absolutely right to some extent when we use that word acid we're talking about that same level of kind of experimentalism that same level of willingness to kind of you know but you know put, you know expand consciousness you know but but translated into a political context translated into a cultural context yeah. and using 
and maybe in a later episode we'll do something on the question of how do we move from that kind of breaking outside of like the group psychology mo mode and mold, I suppose, um, from being something of interest groups where you have a small clique of people who know each other to kind of, and I'll borrow Mark's term again, Mark Fisher's term of red plenty, of how do you move that kind of breaking through on a mass level where it isn't just about a group of people sitting in a room together talking about something they all agree on or like taking drugs together or something how does it move to the street that is one of the one of the the one of the problems that has run through the idea of counterculture or the practice of countercultures and it is probably um one of the effects of acid as well actually i mean in the 60s there, there was this big distinction between people who turned on and square society and the more people turned on the further they got from square society and the problems of square society you know but that's just a problem of the avant-garde if it's seen as, a, as something that needs to be turned into a mass practice. Do you know what I mean? You but know, people, yeah, it, yeah, but wasn't that, weren't we all, isn't there also a theory of saying, well, okay, if only some people take acid, it comes out in the music and it affects social relations oh, yeah, as totally. well. Yeah. Well, that's right, yeah, but yeah, no, that, is th that is there. But yeah, of course, I mean, this will come out more when we, and we discuss the counterculture more specifically. I, I think we're all probably committed to a very specific kind of political understanding of what countercultural practice might mean. And that was always that was that's always been a minority position, both within self-identified counterculture and within psychedelic culture. I mean, yeah, the mainstream, the mainstream of the psychedelic movement and in, in even in the sixty in the sixties, it its approach to politics was turning on tune in, drop out. And it was and indeed that's another way in which it resonated with traditions like Taoism and Buddhism, who have, you know, their traditions are for the most the mainstream of those traditions have said, well once you've realised that there's no such thing as the self and all social conventions are arbitrary, what you do is you just remove yourself from them. You know, you go sit up a mountain, move into a monastery. It doesn't it doesn't preach revolution. That's the response. So but I think and I think that also speaks a little bit to something Kier was kind of alluding to earlier about the way in which um you know what what kind of attitude we want to promote to the to the wrecking to the implications of the recognition that you know everything we everything we do to some extent is caught up in arbitrary social conventions because it's also absolutely the case there's a huge industry today in training people to just to change their attitudes to adjust their attitudes to yeah, the lived reality. I mean, there's the whole kind of self-help industry. There's specific traditions like neuro-linguistic programming, which is actually like a huge thing. It's a huge part of contemporary culture in one way, which just specifically teach you to basically hypnotise yourself to not be bothered about, you know, the level of exploitation you're subject to or the shittiness of your job or what have you. And that always has been one of the logical implications and one of the logical possibilities inherent in actual psychedelic practices well you just you know you, you don't really worry about your shit job and your you know your shit social relations you just you know you just sort of trip out every few weeks and that's what and that's sort of what you live for and i think there's very little question that for the well actually there is question but certainly lots of people have you know that that's how they've used those things that's how that you know that the accusation from the kind of non-psychedelic left even of course in the 60s and, and the 70s was that really what was being promoted was just a kind of escapism what was being promoted was a failure to confront social reality and a failure to do anything about it and i would say of course 
the gambit of kind of acid communism or acid Corbynism is to say, well, that it's not enough just to denounce these things as, as hedonistic escapism, that actually we've got to sort of make a play for them. We've got to sort of talk about how do we link our political practice to these potentially very powerful technologies so they're not just appropriated by our enemies. In the mid-1960s, rock and roll was enjoying a golden age, basking in the intricate lyrics of Bob Dylan, the growing sophistication of the Beatles, the exuberant dance music of Motown. But from California, a new, more radical sound was emerging from a desire for musical experimentation and a new drug subculture focused around LSD. Rock was about to go psychedelic. The sort of soundtrack of the counterculture is acid rock, which is quite hard, it's still quite hard to actually play people bits of music and say, well, this is what it sounded like. Um, because it was because acid rock for the most part was a kind of improvisational form. It was kind of borrowing from jazz. It was kind of collective group improvisation, and it was and it was supposed to be. And it was this kind of manifestation of the idea that a kind of egalitarian, collective, and and free social relations could produce something beautiful. Uh, so there's all kinds of examples that we could uh, pick. I mean, the kind of class. I mean, the, in America, the kind of classic example one would always refer to would be the Great Dead. You kind of British audiences always have British listeners always hate the Grateful Dead because they listen to the studio albums, which is just these kind of honky tonk, you know, country rock songs. But actually, they're just the sort of templates for these kind of, you know, these kind of extraordinary group improvisations, which they would play at these concerts where everybody would dance and sort of, you know, so it was more like a rave. And then what's really important as well from gets left out of that history is the presence of kind of black culture and black musicians in that moment. So the early 70s is this extraordinary moment when those this sort of collective improvisation both in funk music and in strands of music coming out of jazz whether you're talking about the spiritual jazz of Alice Coltrane you're talking about the work of people like Simand uh, I think that's how you pronounce the name of the band whether you're talking about people like Sly and the Family Stone whether you're talking about the early Parliament Funkadelic records they all you know come out of this fantastic matrix of sonic possibility in the early 70s which which always and all of this music combined a kind of utopian determination to kind of imagine a better world to assert the possibility of the of freedom but absolutely to assert that in a collectivity like it's always all of these things all of that music is about kind of it's all about large groups of people you know with relatively little you know formal constraints nonetheless cooperative cooperatively producing kind of experience it's quite hard to actually it's quite hard to get that from any of the the music we've got now because it was supposed to be because really it was supposed to be a live experience it's supposed to be something that you you participated in the, that the audience had to be part of the process so there's there's always something missing from hearing the hearing the recordings but i think whenever you're listening to that stuff you've got to bear that in mind that what's going on there is really a really quite a sketchy representation of what was a real this kind of expression of a collectivist utopianism acid rock kind of emerges very quickly from the kind of bay area counterculture to get taken up by you know, some of the most popular artists of the day so you have the beatles you have the, you have the beatles adopting you know, getting really enthusiastically actually proselytizing for LSD and sort of psychedelic culture and getting records banned from the radio because of their apparent references to LSD. So Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds and A Day in the Life, uh, two tracks from Sgt. Pepper's both got banned. But probably, probably the best manifestation of that, the most obvious manifestation of that is the 
track from Revolver from 1966 called Tomorrow Never Knows, where they actually uh, adapt some lyrics from uh, the psychedelic experience, which is uh, Timothy Leary, uh, Richard Albert and Ralph Metzner's original kind of psychedelic manual, kind of loosely adapted from a translation of the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And it was a sort of manual for tripping. And so they read, they effectively, you know, John Lennon kind of reads out, or kind of, you know, sort of sings some some adapted lines from that book over this uh, backwards drum beat where, over this track, which is mostly made from, it's a kind of tape collage of, of music they've made in the studio, but then they've used kind of backwards tracking and multi, and multi-tracking at a time when those technologies are still really new. And when it's a really new idea just to use the, the studio as an instrument in its own right. Uh, and it still sounds kind of incredibly sort of ahead of its time. And I mean, again, this is something, this is one of the, I mean, you know, Mark, you know, Mark and I would, you know, had this kind of back and forth conversations, you know, starting from a point where Mark had historically been very sceptical about kind of the historic value of psychedelic culture or, or kind of uh, hippie culture. And I, But one of the things that he got very excited about was the kind of recognition that, you know, the people like the Beatles adopting these kind of techniques was a real eruption of kind of utopian experimentalism into the mainstream of popular music. It's not just the Beatles, but like a bunch of bands that the mod bands all get into, all get kind of turned on and start writing these, producing these songs about, um, you know, about LSD culture. So one of the great kind of pop anthems of the late 60s is Small Faces Ichiku Park, you know, with a fantastic chorus. It's all too beautiful, which is about taking LSD in a park in Ilford. Um, so it's about Sounds the kind great. of urban working class kind of embrace of that kind of utopian possibility. And, and you wanted to mention a, another possible... Yeah, well, I, there was this song called uh, My Friend Jack, and the, the, it goes, my friend Jack eats sugar, sugar lumps. lumps. Yeah. Oh, the wonderful things he sees. It's not a subtle song. <laughs> and it's a bit of a cash-in, actually. Yeah. Because sugar lumps, because one of the ways people were taking acid in London in the late 60s was it was dropped on sugar lumps. Yeah. Yeah, and it's sort of like a cash-in, but it's also part of that, you know, these. this is like a mod band who are sort of seeing something that's going on. Uh, it later got termed freak freak beat or trip mod, you mentioned earlier. Well, trip mod's the phrase I made up this morning. Yeah, I know, but like <laughs> post-trip hop, is, <laughs> yeah. it's, a, it's a better term. Was it trip mod? Yeah, trip, trip mod. mod. Yeah. <laughs> but it's sort of an interesting moment because basically mod is, go, mod is sort of almost, you know, the, the paradigmatic post-war youth culture movement basically of like you know young young uh young working class lower middle class kids taking the new consumer culture uh and using it to try and you know using it to try to invent different ways of living basically you know and it was sort of people have talked about it before ian penman talks about it as mods use style as armor it's like you know a, a defense against the sort of indignities of class in a way style is a weapon as we've talked about in yes. workshops before we have used that yeah. yes but that's where i got it from <laughs> style as, style as armor. Uh, yeah and so basically it's the idea of you know basically you know uh, we may have to be we may be lowly clerks uh, but you know what we decide is fashionable today um, the manager is going to be wearing next year and we'll be on to something else. That sort of style as armor sort of thing. So th- this, that, this sort of like freak beat moment marks a moment where, where, where that starts to break, mod starts to break into two different directions and end up very different. So one of them, it goes into, into hippiedom uh, and the other one, it goes into skinhead. Skinhead emerges out of hard, yeah, hard mod. Yeah, yeah. And these two, um, 
you know, uh, are at war within a couple of years. Oh, well, one side is at war with the other. The other side's not bothered about it. <laughs> no, it's, on a, it's on its back in a park in Ilford. <laughs> and it's important politically and historically to recognise the material conditions for that countercultural emergence in the 60s, the material conditions for the Beatles as a popular phenomenon are the success of post-war social democracy. They're the success of a set of kind of reform movements and, and you know, radical movements. Which Money create, and time, right? Yeah, which exactly, yeah, exactly. Which create, which make it materially possible for people to experiment so with lifestyles, with music, etc. But also space, and, right? That people yeah. had a garage or whatever yeah, exactly. to like record music or, in. Exactly. Or squatting in London. Or squatting, yeah, yeah, all of those of things. The counterculture in London, punk rock couldn't have happened without no, it, etc, etc, etc. But when we're talking about counterculture, we're, we're, we're not just talking about these set of practices. And tell me if I'm wrong, but I understand it's not just that set of practices and a bit of anti-authoritarianism, is it? It's basically saying, okay, there was at least a culture, a group of people who in their day-to-day -day lives, they wanted to do things differently. They thought they had the right to do things differently. And they they wanted to live out that experience till they die or whatever, as opposed to saying, I don't know, I'm trying to tease out whether it has something in it about believing that you're going to win on some level. Yeah. And when I say we're going to win, I don't mean as in all guns blazing. I mean as in we are going to be able to actualize our lives in this way, which is not the way that the mainstream wants us to. Because to me... And this is going back to like Marx's stuff about um, capitalist realism. That's the bit that's missing. There's a lot of people out there who are anti-authoritarianism, who are, who are anti-authoritarian in a sense. You know, they want everyone to leave them alone. They just want to do their own thing. But it seems to lack, and again, I might be wrong, but that kind of that kind of collectivity of believing there's enough of us out there who don't want it to be like this. We don't want to live our lives like this. In fact, we're trying to live our lives another way. You're totally right, Nadia. At that time, it wasn't just in the counterculture, though. I mean, what the thing we're separated from was the extreme confidence of the left. A general feeling is that um, capitalism was going to die. Uh, something has to replace it. Uh, communism will win was not an ironic statement at that point. There was this, this huge confidence that, uh, you know, if you were on the left, you were on the side, history was on your side and you were going towards progress, progressive, etc. I mean, it's all built into the words. Um, one way into this, though, right, one way to thinking about trying to link these things up is that is is the subtitle of Mark Fisher's book. So it's going to be Acid, Acid Communism on Post-Capitalist Desire. Right. So one way to think about this as the counterculture was, you know, this was this a huge experiment in creating desires which could not be fulfilled within capitalist social relations. And in fact, that sort of, it sort of even works better when you, when you say the 1960s was this period when the whole social democratic uh, settlement, the whole post-war deal, you know, reached its limits and people were pushing beyond it, basically. The confidence that comes with material security... Uh, Push, makes you want more and that people wanted more and more and more and so that's post-capitalist desire and we can we can't get back to that sort of confidence that the left and the counterculture had that is just not available to us anymore for lots and lots of reasons perhaps we can build up more confidence and the more you know and that would be a positive feedback loop uh, i think we, we can get to that confidence <laughs> i totally think that we can 
But but the, if we think about it as like as as post capitalist desire, there are lots of desires that are being formulated in our, in contemporary society, which have got a post capitalist dynamic to them. If we want to follow those desires to their fulfilment, we will need a different form of economic and social and political setup. We can so so that that's one way to think of it. And one way you can think of 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 the project of ACFM is to work out what those desires are. Because those desires are the things that butt up against the dynamics of capital, and therefore those—that's a strong indication of like that should be the where the place where we develop tools and technologies to try to push that and try to draw out that the 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 observation that is capitalism, the dynamics of capitalism that are limiting your desires. That seems like a pretty explosive politics to me. The question of what what is or was a post-capitalist desire is really important one in understanding the the trajectory of the left and the counterculture from the early 70s because of course one of the things that's really interesting from a contemporary vantage point is that one of the, the the kind of thing that a lot of people thought was a desire that could not possibly be contained by capitalism in the early 70s was for example you know legalizing gay marriage or something like people really thought that people thought that capitalist that the form of capitalism they were currently inhabiting was so dependent upon certain kinds of traditional familial relations that even a little tweak with them would burst it open and that turned out not to be true and like and the fact that that turned out not to be true is one of the things we're still confronting actually and we're still trying to process the left but what happened? But, but it is the case that what the counterculture succeeded. Well, now I'm using the counterculture very loosely, and I would say, um, let's just say what the, the sort of the new left and the kind of movements, the new social movements of the late sixties and early seventies, and the general, you know, the general pr- proliferation of utopian democratic demands did to the left was to really put on the table issues like gay liberation, women's liberation, anti-racism, etc., and to make them part of the culture of the left. And sections of the left in the 1970s also partly under the influence of ideas coming through the counterculture, but also partly because of the influence of kind of radical traditions with a much older history and and just the kind of spontaneous logic of class struggle became committed to ideas like workers' control in industry, like the democratisation of welfare state services, etc. And a kind of radical democratisation of, of political institutions, social institutions, etc., but I think at the same time, I think the mainstream left, I mean, really, it has to be said, that, I mean, for the, apart from a, a few figures like sort of Tony Benn and the people associated with him, if you're talking about the British left, I mean, it was mostly hostile to the counterculture. It mostly saw the counterculture as a threat that it had to neutralise or contain. I mean, its response was mostly reactionary. The response of the leadership of the Labour Party and the Labour movement in the 70s was almost exclusively and explicitly reactionary. Uh, you know, people like James Callaghan, you know, saw themselves, they saw the counterculture as essentially manifesting a set of decadent, bohemian, sort of middle-class desires, which had no relevance to... But are we talking about people's behaviour? So are we talking about bits of music? Like when, like when you say, like, the left was said, oh, this, is, this is all of these things that you've just said... Like, I mean, about the counterculture, is it talking about people walking down the street, how they behaved, how they were voting, what they were doing or not doing? Like, what are we actually talking about? Well, what I'm, talk- I'm talking about what, you know, the left did when it had state power. I'm talking about the fact that 
you know, it largely that most of the demands that emerged from the, the from the new left and the counterculture were seen as demands which basically threatened the stability of that post-war social democratic settlement. So, um, and that you know, I mean, one of the great examples is is on schooling. I mean, it was it was really you know the Canahan government which decided that you had to put a you know a line under the, the influence of the progressive education movement in schooling. So, and and really kind of started to reintroduce or to introduce the idea that the kind of people the school should be producing were you know hardworking, entrepreneurial, kind of you know career oriented, you know industry ready. Uh, you know, workers rather than the sort of holistic, creative uh, subject which the progressive m- movement in education, influenced by traditions like romanticism, had been trying to produce. So, so the effect. Um, so, I would say, to a large extent, the, the effect of the uh, the effect of the counterculture on the left was quite limited, and it actually really. Um, that left open a lot of space for neoliberalism then to come along and say, you know, well, we can at least, we're not going to give you um, the kind of utopian, egalitarian, democratic world you want, but we are going to give you a world in which um, individual lifestyles for those who have the money to take advantage of the opportunities afforded to them will be much freer, actually, will be much less regulated than they have been at any kind of comparable moment in history. So it was able that, and I think, but I think the real, I think the real point of tension there that's really important to bring out for us is that a key feature of the counterculture and of the new left at the time, and a really important feature of the counterculture, which a lot of subsequent sort of historical representations of it completely ignore, was its real opposition to sort of bourgeois individualism. That it really saw, even in the kind of post-war egalitarian culture of the social democratic Britain and New Deal America, it, saw, it still saw the prevalence of very individualistic, materialistic, consumeristic kind of values and culture as being one of the obstacles to the, realize, the realization of it of its desires, and that what it wanted was a world in which you know, social relations will be much more collective, but in which collectivity will be understood as a condition of freedom, in which, you know, you would have, you know, you would have a more, a freer way of raising children because it would be done more collectively. Can we see any traces of a new counterculture emerging today? Apart from us. I, <laughs> I guess, for me, I still don't fully understand like what a counterculture would would look like. I'm not trying to problematize it, but it's like I, I have to understand how it would actualize itself, and that's what I think I'm working my working through through this through this experience that we're uh, putting together as part of the show. I think but I, I don't know. What do you think? I think. Well, what do you think? I think the desires are there. The desires are, are obviously there. You know, we we started we quite a while ago. We said you know the ability the, the ability to to explore what freedom means for you has material underpinnings. A lot of those material underpinnings aren't there. They're definitely not there in the same way as they were in the 50s, 60s and 70s. Perhaps we'll just say 60s and 70s. Uh, so, you know, and I'm sure we could go and look at you know, instances of rave culture, instances even of festival culture, and see you know, that some of the coordinates of what we think could turn into into a counterculture but I think that's the project that's the project we're going to try to explore we should do an we should definitely do an episode on the history of festivals we should do an episode on the California ideology where how, how all of these desires from the, from the 1960s and 70s get turned into this weird 
get embedded in our technology, basically. So I'm going to ask, I'm just going to ask for clarification. So when you say that there are material underpinnings mm-hmm. of post-capitalist desire or of desires, like what are we talking, what would you mean? No, there are material underpinnings to the ability for you to have the space and time to explore how you would like to live. Okay. To, 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 to recognize the way that you live now is built up of all of these sort of power relations, habits and all this sort of stuff. Say, I'm going to break with that and I'm going to explore what I'd actually really like the world to be like, what I'd like to be like myself. That, that a lot of people, for, you know, there's hundreds and hundreds of years of people exploring that. But for most of that, it was, an, it was, a, it was a, a, available only to this tiny proportion of the population. It was basically aristocrats, those of independent wealth, or those people who had the patronage of wealthy people, mm-hmm. artists, basically. Um, so that, so for, you know, for the brief period, there was a, there was a, in the post-war period, there was a, a level of security, right? This suspension from the fact that if I didn't get a job, if I lost my job, I would be destitute and on the streets. All of a sudden, that wasn't true. And guess what? Loads of people said, great, in that case, well, I'm going to work less. I'm not going to work at all. I'm going to find, you know, find other ways to do it. Oh, lots, lots of other people who want to experiment with that as well. And that's what I mean by the counterculture. We're in an interesting historical moment because, I mean, clearly we're not at a moment like the late 60s, which is the culmination of arguably 150 years of kind of cycles of struggle. Like, we're in a moment, we're, we're 30 years on from a moment of catastrophic defeat for the global left. And we're kind of figuring out what it means to have a left again in the era of the, the internet and you know, platform technologies, etc. But I think also we're in a weird historical moment is indeed the material conditions don't really exist for something like the counterculture of the 60s. And there's a whole argument, there's a pretty, perfectly reasonable argument actually, which is that it's silly even to talk about it now, that we need to reconstruct something like social democracy so that a later generation might have the opportunity to do that. But what's different about the historical moment is that indeed we have the memory. There are still plenty of people alive who lived through it of this moment when everybody was capable of doing that. And I think we can't get away from that. I think you know, you, that genie will never be put back in the bottle, you know, uh, if you like. That, that, that experience of, uh, of a time, of a moment when it seemed like that kind of freedom might be available uh, to everybody. And I think that kind of comes on to this... Um, so I think in a sense, I think we're all agreed there isn't really a, there isn't really a counterculture. I think there are the potential seeds of it. We recognise the need for one. We'd like there to be one. We want to think about how you, how you articulate one, how you might make it possible... One argument, one answer to the question is how you make it possible is, well, you indeed, you just do exactly what we've criticised Corbynism for doing. You pursue a kind of economic agenda which counters austerity and rebuilds social democracy. So the question then is, this final question on our list is, what is the counter to that? I mean, <clears throat> why do we think cultural politics matters to the possible success of Corbynism? Because I think one of our arguments would be, I think we've, we would all agree on this, is actually it's not enough. It's not enough for Corbynism or a contemporary left politics simply to try to restore the kind of political project of the 40s and defer to some infinite moment in the future or even some moment in a generation in the future the, the dreams of the 60s and 70s, the dreams of democratising workplaces, of, you know, of, of genuine kind of social liberation. And so I think the argument we would want to make is that, well, correct me if I'm wrong on this. Why we think this is important? Because I, my, I feel that that the, the genie which you know the genie which gets out of the bottle in the 1670s has never gone back. Actually, I mean, there's a piece I wrote on open democracy, which Mark kind of borrowed from a fair bit, I think. Which you know, uh, there was a couple of pieces, but the one I'm thinking of particularly that, you know, <coughs> I, I said I don't. Th- I think you look. 
neoliberal culture and capitalist culture since the 70s and 80s it has to do lots and lots of work to keep trying to suppress the desire for kind of collective freedom you know it has to it doesn't it, it doesn't it's not just that it didn't just destroy the institutions of social democracy and the labor movement and then just stop doing it it's constantly having to do more and more work to stop you know potent free forms of collectivity emerging <coughs> otherwise it wouldn't still be attacking the universities it wouldn't still be trying to privatize public utilities it wouldn't just be doing everything that it's still doing so I think those desires, to some extent, are still there. They're still there in the culture. And I think no, for, we can't, we're not going to have a successful, even kind of social democratic project, which doesn't connect with them. I think if, 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 if Corbynism doesn't do some of what we want, which is to say to people, OK, we're going to take culture seriously. We're going to take seriously the need for government to create material conditions now for creative freedom, whether it's through universal basic income or free services for everyone or investing or just investing in sort of community arts, whether it doesn't take seriously the democratic demand for people to have more say over running their communities instead of just having them run for them by benevolent technocrats, etc. If it doesn't do that, then in fact, in fact, it won't succeed. And, and the thing that Keir warned of at the beginning of the discussion, that the right actually successfully, you know, to some extent, capturing the idea of freedom, mm -hmm. will, it is what will what will win, that some kind of, or some resurgent neoliberalism will win. Because I actually think, I mean, the biggest danger in the world right now is that the, it's not even the new right. The biggest danger right now is that after five years of Trump, like a return to Obama or Hillary Clinton, or kind of Blairite cosmopolitan neoliberalism will seem like a pretty good deal to lots of people. In, in America and Britain and people will just go for it and if the left and if I think if the left can't develop a cultural politics you know which speaks to the desire for a cosmopolitan culture and 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 you know sexual freedom and all of these things in in a more meaningful way then we just won't succeed Do we? but we will succeed also not because for another reason which i think is really important which is it's not just the legacy of the actual people who lived through the 60s and 70s although they are around they are getting older and this is going to sound really hippie-ish, but I actually think that, that the desire for freedom is a really basic human thing. And you can see it trying so hard to come out, you know, in people's day-to-day -day lives in Britain today. And I would say that actually a collective project which speaks to that and makes the space for culture is one that is going to make that reality come true much quicker. If you don't want a future where Macron is uh, up against, uh, is trying to get elected versus uh, a fascist forever. <laughs> you need then acid you, communism. Yeah, you need to tune into acid communism radio every week, month or day, or how often we do this. Or acid communism. Or, or acid communism. Or acid communism is good as well. Just acid, really. <laughs> this show is brought to you by Navarro Media. To find articles, videos and more audio content like this, head to navarromedia.com. If you've particularly enjoyed this podcast and encourage others to listen to it, why not head to iTunes and as well as subscribing, leave us a review. Navarro Media can exist only thanks to the generosity of our subscribers and supporters. If you have the means, please consider subscribing at support.navarromedia.com. As well as helping us continue to produce regular content, subscribers will also receive priority access to events as well as promotions throughout the year. For regular updates, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Navarro Media. Media for a different politics.